0: Leonard Cohen suggested there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. This viral crack gives us a chance to create something new and better. So let's talk about back to different and let the light in. I am here today uh, with Steve Perlman and we have never met and yet we're meeting because we live in this amazing time as a coffee sip where we can have friends all over the known universe, which is our planet. And I ran into Steve, I think on LinkedIn, because I responded to something that you had wrote written, Steve, um, about critical thinking, which has always been one of my fascinations in my life, and I do a lot of work with it now, but from maybe a less um, scientific perspective than yours, but that may be not true, and we're, we're about to find out, aren't we? So I wanted to ask you to start by kind of telling us how how you got here to this place in your life.
1: Well, thanks for having me and for this conversation and the ability to As you said, reach out and make connections that we otherwise wouldn't for all of, think the failings of social media, we find some of these great perks in it as well. I've been in academia for a long time, but that journey really started when I myself was a student and as a student in academia to my parents' chagrin and sometimes their fury, I was not a great student, necessarily. Uh, Teachers always thought I was very capable, but never lived up to that potential, at least in my public school career uh, before going off to college, Uh, because I personally never found education as engaging to me as I hoped that it would be. I loved learning things. I didn't love school always. I loved some of my teachers, Uh, certainly some of my classes were great. But collectively speaking, I was frustrated by the school experience. Uh, And it just was not as engaging to me. And perhaps uh, through one of my own failings, not having the self-discipline to be better. But I would often find that things in my mind that I was thinking about were more interesting than the things that I was learning in school. Now, sometimes, again, I want to take there's a pro and a con to that. Sometimes they were just more interesting to me. And sometimes because I didn't have the discipline, the self-discipline to try to engage enough what was happening in school because I was not as engaged in it as I naturally was by some of my own ideas. Some of which were patently idiotic or fanciful, of course, in retrospect, because I was eight or 10 or 13 or what have you. But, so, uh, but nevertheless, was raised with a tremendous respect for and passion for the notion of learning and education and actually became a teacher right out of graduate school or during graduate school at American university when teaching writing there and loved teaching. I felt it was a calling to teach nonetheless, loved it, had a passion for it and had such a great passion for and love for my students and respect for my students. And I think one of the things that I always felt with my students was that A, I would always treat them with a great deal of respect, which was expecting more from them than often was expected of them, because I saw such great potential in people, and B, making an effort to, and I was not successful initially, and the degree to which I was successful probably varies over time by student and so forth, but not to be, or not to provide the kind of education that turned me off, at least when I was in school. So I taught for many years, long story short, was always a very progressive educator, always very challenging, always got exceptional evaluations, or most of the time at least. Sometimes a shift in university meant some bumps in the road there. But um but it was very challenging to the students and but taught differently than most people did, I came to understand eventually through word of mouth from my students and so forth, and eventually took a role at at a university and was charged at that university with elevating critical thinking outcomes across the university. And as I'd been a writing instructor to that point, critical thinking I had already felt was a natural emphasis and is often considered an emphasis of writing instruction. And it was my personal penchant as well to emphasize critical thinking which is not always the case for writing instructors. Some might emphasize some other factors, which can also be great, but mine was critical thinking. And as I was given this charge, and then my colleague was with me, Dave Carrillo, who is part of the critical thinking initiative. We were both given the challenge to do this. And what's interesting about this for people who don't know, and most people don't, is that most universities can demonstrate absolutely no growth in critical thinking uh, among their (laughs) student body from the time they entered to leave. In fact, some demonstrate a decline in critical thinking from early essays to later essays. That's partly because of what's asked for in the essays, not necessarily that the students are getting stupider (laughs) over the course of their education. But nevertheless, they can't demonstrate the growth. And we were actually through a series of iterations, a lot of iterations, a lot of failure, a lot of regrouping, able to create a system and an idea of critical thinking that was instructable and learnable and actually improved outcomes across the board for our students on the aggregate. Mm -hmm. And this is a very unique story in academia, but what the way that circle closes back for me is that when we got students thinking critically about their work and engaged in critical thinking about their subject matter, their engagement elevated they became much more invested in their education. They cared about it much more. And that comes back to what I was saying earlier about my own disengagement from it, which I didn't fully understand at the time. And I didn't fully understand when I began this journey into developing critical thinking and studying the problem, but that it's an absence of critical thinking in school that often is what is disengaging for students, because it's, critical thinking is applicable to our life. Thinking critically about things is what we naturally do as Homo sapiens. We can't help but do it. But that doesn't mean we're trained in how to do it better. And that doesn't mean that we necessarily are also doing it in school. And as I write in my book, America's Critical Thinking Crisis, school is the only place where human beings are asked to learn like they do in school. It's a very unique place. Everywhere else, we learn differently than we do in school. And school is not a natural environment for our learning process. In fact, it's antithetical to how we naturally learn in many ways. And I just want to say one more thing before I close out here, which is a very important caveat for me. We have to have greater respect for educators in this country. And I in no way ever take this issue up with educators personally who aren't trained in this as I wasn't trained in this and only became fluent in this by studying the problem for 10 years with my colleague, Dave. And so that educators might not be fostering the kind of critical thinking in their classes that we might eventually hope to see is none thought their fault at all. And they're under-respected and underpaid and undervalued in our culture. And we need to reverse that. So let's not view this as pointing a finger at them. I'm looking at an educational paradigm that's, a problem, not at an educator who is putting in the work and doing the noble work that we need them to do.
0: I mean, I would been I, I started out as a public school teacher. I've never worked harder for less money <laughs> and for more abuse. Right. And lack of respect. I mean, I think I had good respect for my from, from my students and from some other teachers. But as soon as you started going farther up the food chain, um, it became I became not not a person, I became a thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I became a name in a department teaching these these classes. And I was in the principal's office as a teacher more than I was as a student. And I was in there frequently as a student. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, what, what you're talking about, about teachers. My, my first day of teaching in, in 1971, I still had hair down to my ass because um, <laughs> I am a child of the 60s. And I walked through the the front door and the principal came popping out of his office. And I thought, "Uh oh, he said, you must be the new teacher, Mr. Bogart, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And I thought, oh, man, here we go. Because I had such a reaction to that sort of authority. Right. It's that right. knee jerk. Here comes the.
1: <clears throat> yeah. Here comes the man.
0: Yeah. Here comes the man. <laughs> right. But he, he held out his hand and he said, I, I, I want one thing to be perfectly clear. He said, I work for you. And I was flabbergasted. I, I literally, had, I was like, <laughs> does not compute. <laughs> and he said, because you're an English teacher, we have a special deal with our English department. If you can get 33 students to sign up for a class that is even remotely connected to the English language, I will find the money to fund it for you. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Indeed. So my first semester. Um, I got to teach besides, you know, grammar and, and literature and stuff. I got to teach two six-week classes. One was in readings and comparative religion. Hmm. And he had to be my champion for that because, you know, there was pushback on that one.
1: Sure. Especially yeah. way back then.
0: Yeah. And science fiction. But he got yanked out from of the school because he was too close to the teachers. Ah. And he got replaced by a Martinette who the only thing on his desk was the supervisor's manual or whatever they called it. I know it was, it was, so I lasted three more years and then I was gone.
1: Well, teaching really is, it is the most challenging of endeavors. And to paraphrase some other speakers who've said, written about this, but consider that what's more challenging as a, as a, as an endeavor than the shaping of, this plethora, this heterogeneity of minds, of personalities, yeah. of dispositions, of interests, of intellects, of upbringings, and so forth, into trying to get them all to learn, learn anything, but much less learn roughly the same thing, and all at the same time. And it's not just a matter of communicating subject matter, but you're dealing with psychology, you're dealing with entertainment, you're dealing with interest, you're dealing with kids who have been abused to kids who have having great you know upbringings and wonderful experiences but nevertheless might not be interested at all in your particular subject matter but they can't wait to get to their next class or what have you and you're doing this whole you're doing all of this to try to wrap them in together and I of i'm also a martial artist and uh, uh another instructor of great respect for a guy named Roy goldberg Calls himself an artist, and he says he introduces himself to people. He says, "Well, what?" They say, "What do you do?" He says, "And well, I'm an artist." And they say, "Well, what is your art?" <laughs> and he says, "Well, I I work in martial arts." And they say, "Well, then, what is your canvas?" And he says, "People." And it's the most difficult canvas of all, uh, because it always is pushing back and squirming in different ways.
0: As it as it ought to. Absolutely. Right. And and. Yes you know schools are unfortunately look like factories yes very and and i mean i've worked on some assembly lines in my life and i remember learning how to turn my brain off completely while i was on the assembly line i mean literally i would have no recollection of the passage of time until the whistle rang for our our 15 minute break Well, and
1: sadly, if we look back at the history of the American educational system, we can look back around the turn of the previous century and we can read the records. And there was a, it was, this is the industrial revolution and they made a, the department of education made a concerted, very deliberate decision that most of our kids would end up working in factories on assembly lines. And as such. Let's not have an education that inspires their dreams and teaches them to be free thinkers and so on. Let's have an education that prepares them for factory life, to, to, to do a certain thing when the bell rings, to listen to authority, to do what they're told, because that's how their life's going to be. And in a sense, they were trying to be compassionate, they thought, because they thought if we give them full, uh, make them full of hopes and dreams and new ideas and aspirations, they're all just going to live disappointed lives. So let's just get them used to it from an early stage. But in really it was a just a terrible crime. It was an abuse
0: it, that it was is. committed. Absolutely. It's it's a crime against humanity. Yeah. And we, I think, are are paying the price for that now that that we see. And I don't think it's because of it's it isn't a capacity issue. It's a tamping down issue. You said this in what you were talking about is is, um, our, our capacity for thinking critically, if not limitless, is a lot bigger than we may give it credit for. And students aren't stupid. Kids are not stupid. In fact, you can make the case that they're smarter than adults are in a whole lot of ways. So they get the message that that the schools way underestimate their capacity for creativity thinking discovery all those wonderful things that the human brain we know has the capacity for and and it's it's a kind of abuse
1: in school so in life students and we this is one of the ways that we found we had to communicate with students about critical thinking. So if they didn't feel that we were calling them stupid, which we never were, but we didn't want to give that impression because when we go into a class and you say, well, we're going to teach you how to think critically, the immediate reaction is often, well, or, or, you know, that you might be calling us stupid by saying that we need to learn how to think. And what we say to them is really just the opposite. And in life, you're always making rich complex decisions that are mixes of these tremendous influences on you, your economics, your friendships, your social statuses, what you're learning, what you're interested in, relationships. All of these things are coming to bear on all of your decisions all of the time in your life. And they're very complex ones. And you're critically thinking your way through them. School is not necessarily asking you to integrate all of those things all the time in memorizing facts for a test or writing a paper on something. That complexity, that richness is often absent. What we want to help you to do is identify what critical thinking really is and develop the skill like a runner. We tell them, you know, like, like a runner would develop the skill. All of, all of the students have some capacity to run, but if you want to be a better runner, you got to train, right? And you got to train differently. If you want to be a sprinter versus a marathoner, well, everyone has a capacity to think critically. And, but if you really want to be exceptional at it, then like anything else you can train it if you really know what it is and how to do it. And so when we, to go back to your point, though, which I think is a, such a critical one about the nature of our society and the tamping down of this intellect that we're seeing and the problems we're seeing now, we have to consider that we take these rich thinkers who are doing it in life, but what we've trained them to do is listen to authority, not really question the answers, but to know the answers and think they have the right answer when they get an answer, that it's right. Right, And it's given to them. It's not one that they're discovered. they are discover for themselves. It's given. So we have people in this country on both sides of the political aisle. Some might think one more than the other. But who, nevertheless, can put on a news network or listen to an authority figure, be told that something is true. And by habit, as they, we've trained them to do often in education, not in all the classes, but far too many, as a paradigm at least, Take that as right, regardless of whether or not it's right, and not engage it critically for themselves, because they haven't been habitualized to do that
0: and once it's injected as right, it abides yes, there and and our our um, our frame for new information becomes like a shoehorn. We, we like figure out how to pry it and move it so that, so that it like doesn't threaten this thing, which we have taken as, you know, what you said about the right answer as opposed to a universe of possibility. Yes. It's kills critical, right? That kills, that's a way to kill critical thinking. <laughs> Yes.
1: And, but let's, it does. It absolutely, it, it actually, and there's plenty of research on this. It shuts it off and we can yeah. show, we can show the brain at work through fMRI study that actually shows parts of the brain shut down once that student or the brain thinks it has an answer to a question as opposed to is ruminating on it. But there's a survival mechanism here to this belief persistence that you're talking about. That's really very interesting. Why do we reject new information? Because we're alive. The information we've had has clearly helped us to survive. We're alive, we're living, you know, and so forth. And anything, and therefore the brain to a certain degree assumes that this paradigm must be a good one because we're not dead. (laughs) No, And new information changing this way of life for us is a threat to that survival. Even if it's better, it's nevertheless first, often, not always, but for too many people, it's perceived as a threat because the brain intuitively accepts its present information as being healthy and good. Cause it's alive to think that based on that information,
0: which contributes to people staying in jobs that they hate yep. in toxic relationships. It hasn't killed me. Right. So it's, it, it like meets the minimum requirement for, for, for thinking.
1: Yes. Well, the unknown is always scary, yeah. right? Even if what we have isn't great, the unknown could be worse. And so it takes a lot often to move people out of an existing paradigm and be willing to take on a new one and take on a risk into some new intellectual universe of any kind. Uh, it's just dangerous.
0: Part of what I try to do in the work I do with people about learning is to create a context you know, to to create a a sort of social environment for the day or for the half day or whatever, where there are no boundaries. Uh, The first thing I have my participants do is to um, each one to establish what their objective is Hmm. for the day. I never give them objectives ahead of time, which some of my clients do not like. There's a there's a, a wonderful mixture of response when I say all right before we start I want you all to develop the objectives now about a third of the people go well that's your job you know <laughs> right. what are you talking about that's not right. how it works um, about a third show this sort of like hmm and then about another third is like God I wish people had told us this a long time ago because this is really cool right and it, it's 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 such. I mean, I'm not a cynic, nor nor will I ever allow myself to be a cynic, because I'm an idealist. I'm definitely a child of the '60s, but it is such a shame that because I I teach tall children now, which is mm-hmm. adults, right? Yes, right. Um, it's such a shame. Sometimes I get this 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 real feeling of sadness when, like, somebody who's in their '60s, when I, in what I do, kind of open the door for them to like boldly go. <laughs> It's like they haven't done it mm-hmm. for 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 forty years because they thought that that was breaking the rules, and mm-hmm. it, it, it breaks my heart. I mean, once they get it, they're off and running. But it's like all those years that you thought that you had to stay inside the cell when when it, it it really wasn't locked,
1: right? But it intellectually was risky yeah intellectually it was perilous or at least perceived as perilous whether or not it was i mean the consider that the, the the mask phenomenon that's going on now the people who are against wearing the mask despite the science that it's just exceptionally clear that wearing a mask can help us protect one another and ourselves right but think about what has to be conceded once we've taken the step to say, I don't want to wear a mask or I don't think it is, now we have to concede being wrong. Now if you concede a threat to our lives because if I don't believe there was a threat before and didn't wear a mask because I didn't think there was a threat that I needed to respect, now I have to accept a threat into my life that I didn't want to accept before. And it's the same thing reiterated in this circumstance I think what you were describing, right? Mm -hmm. Which is there's this intellectual peril for us, of challenging my life, challenging what I thought was safe and my paradigm. And what we do is we try to take critical thinking as a way to open people up to and expose people to the value and the security of uncertainty and the security of not believing you have the perfect right answer, because that's when we are, in fact, in the most danger is when we think we have the right answer, the one singular right answer. Not to say that all answers are equal. Some answers are much better than other answers for a (laughs) lot of circumstances, right? But rarely do we have the empirically perfect answer. And so one of the things that we do when we train people in critical thinking, and one of the foremost important things that we do is get them to respect the value and the security that is provided by uncertainty, which, and skepticism. And there's, we are in a safer place when we recognize where we might be fallible than when we believe that we are
0: certain. I love it. I love that. Because that, um, that courage to accept ambiguity as the, the uh, uh, most generative learning environment Yes. I mean, that's a, um, that's a huge light bulb. And, and I can see in your face the, the joy you get when the people you're working with, that light bulb fires off.
1: Oh, in fact, we can see the body language change. You see the body
0: language change. And that is such a gift for doing right. this work. Um, and I learned early on to very seldom call that body language shift to their attention because then they're suddenly self-conscious and they kind of pull back. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. But yeah, no, you're right. You see the, you see so many physiological changes and then all of a sudden people who, who, who tend to over-talk back off a little bit and people who don't contribute all of a sudden it's like, Oh, 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 oh call on me. I got an idea. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, and two things on that to follow up on your point, which is wonderful, which is that um, one of the things that's integral to it uh, in a corporate context, for example, is when leadership makes it clear that they're going to value an uncertain answer instead of the certain one, yeah. because that's not often the employee's perception or the executive's perception. They believe that they have to present the, the answer forward when really leadership is often saying we're comfortable or we are we would embrace an answer that represents some uncertainty given the complexity of the circumstance. We still want your best answer, but we recognize that it doesn't have to be a perfect answer to us. We want that. And then that eases it because there's a misperception there often. And sometimes not a misperception. Sometimes we have to change what leadership really expects from their employees and executives along the way. But we can even see it in, let's say, if you take a brainstorming session with students What's very clear is that in, that in a typical brainstorming session, most of the voices never get heard yep. because the initial ideas or the loudest ideas become popular and accepted because people are resistant to wanting to, to create conflict and challenge those ideas. Or if there's a conflict between two ideas, the other f- four people might not want to get involved and in, embroiled in that kind of conflict at all either. But if we do something like let's say have have every all the participants write down their ideas first, and then we're gonna trade all those papers around, everyone's gonna read everybody's idea. Then all the ideas get heard at first, and actually that's been shown to produce much better kind of brainstorming outcomes than the other system. Right. Just because all the ideas get some airing. And then but it's the same idea that you're talking about, right? Which is really inviting this idea that we're removing the threat from your, from you exposing your idea or your uncertainty that you have to put your idea out there. Maybe it's not going to be the best one, but maybe people think it's smarter than you think it is, <laughs> which often happens, right? And so these are very powerful tools, but very I, simple ones.
0: Um, I do that more or less exercise in the work I do around critical thinking. And I always have them draw the ideas out of a hat, basically, so that they aren't reading their own idea Right? right. Uh, which sounds yes. like you do too. And um anytime they I mean you you can feel it in the room where like people are going uh, uh, danger, little Robinson, danger, danger. Yeah. Uh we do an exercise called Where's the Tiger?
1: What is right? this? I'd love love to know.
0: Where's the tiger means what just made you afraid of this idea? Hmm. What just you know, where is the threat there? And by the time we spend, we do that for a little while, I can hear them in the back of Wait a minute, y'all, where's the tiger? And that leads to this incredible conversation about it's an imaginary tiger hmm. because it, it really isn't a threat until we, pre- I mean, some things are obviously if there's right. a, sure. If there's like a venomous snake in your desk or something, that's an appropriate time to be afraid. But that leads to this great conversation about, We made up the tiger here. What's what's threatening is, as you said way early in our conversation, is it's like wearing a mask. That's that's actually a very complex thing. Right. Because wearing the mask now, I admit I was wrong before. Right. Wearing the mask means this really is a dangerous virus. And as long as I don't wear the mask, I don't have to acknowledge that. Right. Right. Yeah. And so it go.
1: So uh, we do a similar thing. So when we go into and we work with educators and there's plenty of re- cognitive research on this, but what we say to them is you have to create this environment where, you know, ideas can flourish. And we say to them, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you, uh, we need to ask you each to write down a definition on an in index card of critical thinking. We're going to look at your definitions. Okay. And we're going to put the smartest definition of critical thinking up on the board for everyone to look at. It's going to be the best one. So, but we're also going to do this. We're going to put the dumbest definition of critical thinking up on the board for everyone to look at. Now, what are you all going to do? Right? Here's what everyone will do in the room based on what the cognitive psychology tells us very clearly. There'll be 5% of people in the room, maybe who are going to still go out there and try to write the most interesting creative, new inventive definition of critical thinking that they can. And the other 95% are going to write the safest, most boring, non-controversial definition of critical thinking that they come up to because very few people care about being the, putting, having the A, but everyone, everyone doesn't want their example to be the dumbest one that goes up. And so we have to frame these things in ways that, and have to help them understand that this is the, this is the postulate they're giving to their students every time they say, well, raise your hand. If you have a question in class, who has a question, raise your hand. If the environment isn't naturally conducive to that, and typically students don't find it to be right, then we are facing that same problem because students are not going to offer their comment and they're not going to raise their hand, not because they don't want to contribute something smart, but the greater fear of communicating something that they fear is stupid. And without a method for thinking critically where they can know that they've come through some thinking process to to at least justify that it's the thoughtful idea, maybe not the best one, but at least a thoughtful idea, then students are much more prone to rely on that emotional concern than the intellectual fortitude that they might have.
0: Absolutely. I all the all the all the teaching that was done to me, <laughs> some of it fantastic, but a lot of it not. I I really got sick of every piece of the whatever at the end the teacher professor whatever would always say are there any questions and I was like that's that's so pro forma man you don't really want a question you're just doing that because it says you always do that so I I stumbled on something that I still do um and I don't take credit for it it just came to me and um if we're, if we we're, if we're open our subconscious sends us important little pearls of data, because it like puts things together, which we we don't do in this part of our brain the same way. Um, so I always ask more or less the same question. All right, I want two really challenging questions right now. I want one pushback about what I just said. And I demand an insight that what we just did brought to you. Hmm. And they light up right because all of a sudden I'm pushing them to explore and discover I'm not asking them to to do rote
1: yes yeah or we'll do we'll do something similar where so where are my ideas vulnerable here today That's, right and that so now we transfer power as well to the other people instead of keeping the power for ourselves it's the same move I love your move it's the same well, move
0: you know what you just said which I think is critical is that a huge part about of this is perceived apparent and real power. Right. Right. Always. I mean teachers stand up in front of the class behind a podium, which is which is power, mm-hmm. right? They often use a microphone, which is artificial power, which is yeah. why I, I worked on voice training early on, because it's such an important power. You know, you deal with words. Right. I deal with words, words and voice. Power. I mean, mm-hmm. I just consciously changed the cadence and the tone of my voice to, to change the power here. But it is about power.
1: Yeah, completely. This is one of the things I discuss in the book as well about educational power structures. And I say um, that students immediately know and they learn from the earliest age. One of the earliest lessons they ever learned is that nothing they say will matter.
0: Ooh.
1: Oh, right and it's unfortunately true, and it means, in the sense that they're not really going to affect the teachers' thinking about a subject matter. They're not really going to change a field. They're not really going to affect anything. Now, that's very different than how things happen in life for us. Yeah. Right. Where, let's say, if you take, kind I of use this example, you take a um, someone starting a first job on a construction site, and they you want to be a construction worker but their first job isn't that they're welding or, or being a carpenter or what have you, right? The first job is they're going to schlep some wood <laughs> back and forth, right? They're going to take the new lumber, carry the new lumber up, and uh, they're going to take the scrap lumber and bring and throw it in the bin. Now that's not necessarily the most interesting or artistic work or, or craft greatest craftsmanship you're going to find on the job site, but you know what it does? It matters. That work matters. They're part of a community their contribution matters to the community's success. But in school, nothing one student does rarely has any consequence for the community's success at all, much less for the teacher's true thinking about the subject matter, oh, yeah. the students know that. So they know they're irrelevant. And if they are irrelevant to the community, if they're irrelevant to the field, what's the point? Right, especially if it doesn't have immediate relevance to their lives. And most things they learn in school could but often don't have immediate relevance to their lives. We can study history to learn what happened in history, or we can study history to learn how to plan for our future, but it's typically the former and not the latter, right? So if it doesn't matter to their lives and it doesn't affect the community and it doesn't affect the discipline, it doesn't really change anyone's thinking, what's the point?
0: And And I can see the pain that that causes you. You know, one of the one of the gifts of this platform is that we can stare at the speaker without making them self conscious, because yep. we have no choice but to stare at them. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: right. Yes, um, wonderful point. Yeah, and a couple of you know a couple of other things about this platform, which I caught on to. Um, this is the only time in our lives that that we cannot help but watch ourselves talk, right? Which is very strange and a very subtle. One, because when I upgraded to the the cheapest professional Zoom, um, I can change what I see of myself to a mirror image. So right now, I am seeing myself as I have never seen myself before. I'm seeing myself as other people see me.
1: That's fascinating. I'm going to do that next time.
0: And, you know, think about what that must do to our brain giving it a whole, because we only see ourselves otherwise in a mirror, except for a photograph, right? Right. Um, And in a mirror, right is left and left is right. But on Zoom, it's how other people see us. And I think that that may be more of, have more of an impact than we, than we realize.
1: Well, I think if we could all see how other people see us more often, it would only benefit us. There It It wouldn't always be easy. It sure wouldn't always be easy for me, but it certainly would benefit us all.
0: Well, I have a friend who says, think of three circles on like a flip chart. Okay. And there's some distance between them. One circle is how we see ourselves. One circle is how other people see us. And the third circle is who we really are. Mm -hmm. And he said, the point of growing as a learner and a leader and an adult is to over time, move those circles closer. Mm. So I have, Two questions for you, as I threatened earlier. Sure. Um, Given the incredible ripples from this giant meteor in our pond, you know, the pandemic, what do you see as opportunities that that gives us to change how we see education, how we see culture, how we see community, any of those things? Where do you see cracks? You know, like Leonard Cohen, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Where do you see cracks that, you know, given that a lot of this is horrible and stuff, I get that. But where do you see possibilities that, that this opens up for us as learners and human beings?
1: I think one of the great possibilities or one of the great benefits that's come from this is that I believe very clearly and very quickly this, this pandemic and its shift to online learning exposed... The travesty that is online learning, that it is in no way a substitute for in-person learning. The students don't think it's a substitute for it. The parents no longer think it's a substitute for it. Educators no longer think it's a substitute for it. But that was the growing consensus for a long time was that online learning was just as good. And eventually it could take the place of in-person learning. And I say this, not that there's no role for learning online or people can't learn things online, but it's not an overall substitute in any way, shape, or form. As I go back to the idea that teachers are artists working with canvases of humans, that canvas is too far mitigated through an online media for us to be able to function with it as we're designed to do, which is to be in person and working with humans and so on. And, And the research on this is very clear. In fact, there's research that if we just give students a technology in the classroom, even if they're doing the same kind of learning activities without the technology or with the technology, much of the learning diminishes with the presence of the technology rather than increases for a variety of reasons I won't go into, but much less putting it at distance online is is much worse. And I think, as I said, the trend was moving where people thought it was just as good or better. The colleges were looking at the economy of having one teacher be able to teach all of the lectures for all of the history 100 class or what have you, rather than paying multiple lecturers to do so. Uh, And parents were looking at online learning options instead of public schools and so forth, which maybe sometimes still have value depending upon the particular ones. but, But what is exposed on the whole is that we need not just schools to be in person for the educational purpose, but for the humanity of it. And that's been a wonderful thing for me to witness in this as people went from saying, well, they'll just learn it online and that's fine to, oh my God, this is not in any way the same. And students who are clearly reporting that they're not learning nearly as much online and, or getting as much out of it from a social or, or hum- humanistic or intellectual perspective as they were, um. So I think that for me has been the greatest thing to see as to what implications it will have for truly transforming in-person learning. I think that's a different question. I think there's still another big step for us to take there that when we all return to the academies in person, the nature of that education still needs reformation as we move forward. But hopefully we've shifted the discussion from just the wonderful values of online learning away from it and recognize some of the very serious ills and it's failure to take the place of learning in person.
0: And that may uh, spur us on to, as we come back into to face-to-face to go, well, you know something that's always been really shitty about face-to-face learning, which we need, this is a real chance that we can like kind of retool, right? Right. Let's, let's, Let's get rid of all the lecterns first of all. We're going to we're going to have a big bonfire. We're going to burn all the lect- <laughs> lecterns this afternoon yeah. and then we're going to dance around the fire, you know. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's let's make some changes. Um the second question is um years from now when you are no longer bothering your your son, right? Yeah. Your son. Um for whatever the reason. Um but your son has grandchildren. Uh, I guess, children to your son, grandchildren to you. And these grandchildren who were are little, you know, 10, 11 or something, they ask about grandpa, which is you. And the question they ask is in our history class, we heard that the year 2020 was really very strange and pretty anxiety, you know, and all this stuff. How did grandpa handle himself? What would you like them to say?
1: That's a fabulous question. I guess anytime we are challenged with messages of posterity, it's always challenging for (laughs) us. But I think what I would like to be known is that I worked for, uh, obviously for the greatest good for my family and my friends, but I worked for a greater good during this time, which was to bring critical thinking out, into the world more through my book and and through our podcast, effort, other things and what have you to really affect some change. You know, uh, we hope for grand, but we'd settle for even humble or marginal or here and there into the world. Uh, because one of the things I talk about in the book and I say it very sincerely, right. I mean, as, as I, as I, we study this critical thinking as we teach it, as we look at the school system uh, we have rainforests burning, you know, California's on fire. We have now a pandemic and so on. And what we have done through education is largely trap people within ideas that other people have already thought. Yeah. What we need are, is an educational paradigm that is valuing foremost beyond anything else the capacity to see and solve the next pandemic before it happens, not to react to it after it does. Though that too, though that too, because there will always be the unforeseen, but we need, to, we need a different educational paradigm, and that's the one that I'm fighting for. It's the one that foresees the next pandemic and prevents it, not just reacts to it.
0: Because the fires in California and the rainforest being cut down Yeah. And the pandemic are not accidents. No. Right. They are, they are, they are events, but they are not accidents. And I think at least partly they are the, the, uh, the impact of um, fractured thinking.
1: Yeah. Well, the the science was clear enough about climate change Coming, and what was going to happen, the scientists were not ambiguous about this after you know a period of time, certainly not you know way back in the seventies, they knew this was coming. It was argued that this was coming, and the science became crystalline on that fairly quickly, much quicker than the popular notions are about it. Um, but we return to belief persistence, we turn to threats away of our lives and our unwillingness to change and our unwillingness to think and to respect those people who have a better process than we do for knowing what it is, who know that the fact that it's snow today doesn't mean there isn't climate change because climate isn't weather and so on. So, yeah, I mean, we, we, we have the capacity, we had the capacity to avert all of it we knew it was going to happen. And by we, I mean the scientists, the experts knew that it was going to happen and we ignored it. And we persisted in other ways for lots of reasons and we need a different way to approach it. Cause you know, who knows what the next calamity would be. And this one, these aren't even over yet. Um, and they're hardly solved for climate change is still in process and getting worse and hardly resolved. And maybe we can do it, or maybe we're going to perish. So it's quite a challenge.
0: Well, Um, intelligence without critical thinking may be a dead end evolutionarily.
1: It is. And in fact, there's research on this that shows us that people who make better real life decisions do not do so necessarily because they have higher IQs. Mm -hmm. It's whether or not they can think critically. That is the distinction. So there's a distinction between how smart someone is and whether or not they use that raw capacity effectively. And people can be very smart and not use it effectively, or people can be very smart and be trained to use it better.
0: And that's more of what we need. Yeah. We need more wax on, wax off. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. Um, Would you send me your uh, mailing address? So I'm going to send you a copy of my book because I like things I can hold. Plus then I can inscribe, uh, which, which gives me a great deal of pleasure.
1: I'll only do it if we can trade mailing addresses and i can all right
0: okay okay god you're cruel <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right um i hope you won't disappear i'm not planning to uh because we need to we need to build a network of of, of people who are trying to nurture stuff that is good and it's good for its own sake it's not good because it's politically right it's not good because it gets us what we want we can't buy a larger tv because we're helping people critically think um but we need to we need to keep fighting the good fight together. I think uh,
1: I I couldn't agree more. And more people doing this kind of work uh, and looking for a future that's better, not just a today, yeah. is is what we need more than anything right now. I think as the pandemic has shown. Yeah, yeah.
0: All right, my friend. I will I will send you um, a notification when this is going to go up live. Great. So so, so you'll know. Um, and I think that's it.
1: I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this, Mac. I've done a lot of different interviews and so forth, and spoken to a lot of people. This has been one of my most positive and favorite experiences. I'm going to remember it for a long
0: time. Me too, which is great, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it really is. <laughs> I hope we can keep in touch and we will. And, uh, you know, do things moving forward in some capacity.
0: Yeah, that that works for me, my friend.
1: Great. All right, all right.
0: Adios, off Take and running.
1: Care. Be well.
0: Thanks for giving us a listen. As we move forward with this situation, with this thing that's us, let's never forget that we are all in this together. No matter what else happens, we're all in this together. Thank you.